Welcome, everyone, to the AI in Business podcast. I'm Matthew DeMello, Senior Editor here at Emerge Technology Research. Today's guest on the program is Leo Barella, Senior Vice President and Chief Technology Officer at Takeda. He joins us on today's program to talk about the biggest challenges facing the healthcare and life science spaces and where we're starting to see AI capabilities and use cases emerge, particularly in drug targeting development. Without further ado, here's our conversation. Leo, thank you so much for being with us on the program this week. Yeah, thanks for having me. So from your advantage point in life sciences, healthcare, drug development, where do you see AI capabilities and use cases start to emerge from challenges? So the use of AI is mostly dependent on data and a strong capability of data management and, you know, big data, right, is is Mm -hmm. key. I would actually say as an industry, as a culture around healthcare, there is now an emergence of, I would actually even define it like as a flood for consumer grade devices that basically you know generate lots of data about who we are what we do from a perspective of of development you know obviously now there is an emergence of of information that that basically is focused on specific outcomes right based on demographics based on climate based on you know more or less your day-to-day life Uh, right really define as the there is actually a component of genome but there's also mm-hmm. a component of your biome, right? So the biome actually does include, okay. you know, all these these aspects. So the, the direct development component now, much like, say, the retail industry, right, it's trying to actually address unmet needs based on people's choices. Well, healthcare and health outcome are related to choices, meaning what you do, what you decide to actually eat, what you decide, you know, how you mm-hmm. actually decide to conduct your life, the level of stress that you actually are putting onto your life. And that data generation is going to generate, you know, is, is going to create, you know, possibilities and opportunities for us to start to be more focused, right, on, on, you know, in areas in which there might not have been, you know, there might not have been as much data before, right? So even actually from the perspective of day-to-day life, mm-hmm. then obviously the, there is more focus on clinical data. So now all of a sudden you're actually getting into, you know, clinical grade type of devices that are necessary in hospital settings or, or in mm-hmm. laboratory settings that are also generating better quality data, right? So if I were to actually focus on now AI and the application of AI, the reason why AI now is actually thriving compared to a few years ago is because of the fact that the level of quality of data that we now actually can absorb and can produce through better electronics, better sensors, better equipment, now it's also not only standardizing the data where basically the data measurement can be trusted but also now the volume and veracity of data that we can actually use is ripe for the use of AI, right? Because big data right. associated with quality data, now all of a sudden can start to really produce some, some good insights and eventually develop into models of prediction. Right in the last answer where you mentioned that we, you know, we've had this big level up of AI, I think it's probably interesting to pull apart there that it hasn't been anything innate to AI that that crosses all the capabilities because the capabilities are so different. You know, we've seen a huge jump in LLMs with GPT-4, later models. They've become very seriously improved even over the last few months. 
by the time I finish this sentence, there might be a new one. And all of our previous assumptions about what AI could do could be wrong. It's also, you were touching a little bit on in your last answer, diagnostics and how much imaging data has has improved. So it's it's across the board on this show. We constantly just try to address any source of ignorance. But like, especially with AI, there can be this assumption that it's all like the same technology and very much that's not the case across the board. But I, I want to pull apart a little bit what you said in your last answer, just in terms of the personalization, like it, even at the beginning of what you were saying, just in terms of how we're seeing this move across the board, especially in life sciences, to try to really map out these human homeostasis symptoms, the biome, everything you were saying just there to really nail that down and how that works. I know there's a really great example you know, elsewhere of pharmaceutical companies really trying to map the whole immune system. And it's, it's really interesting. And largely these systems, because they're human and based on one animal, will one day be able to have at least a really good idea about how all of these things work. Tell us a little bit about the work you see at Takeda in that respect and, and how much more we know about kind of these human systems and the biological systems than we did even just a couple of years ago. Well, again, this is actually not unique to Takeda. I believe that the entire industry, right, is sure kind of on the generation of, you know, in a way, the digital twin or what we actually call, you know, you know, in silico type of models, right? Now, again, this is kind of really where the availability of data, you know, again, if, if we were to actually look at our generation, you know, obviously, yes, you know, the technology, our ability to actually process a large amount of information is there. What's not there is reliable data yet, you know, so as in, I, I believe that, you know, data that has been generated, you know, and the problem that they were trying to solve by definition, right, takes a lifetime to be able to actually, you know, develop and comprehend, right? So it might not actually be something that we will actually be able to see the full, the full extent of potential solutions because it does actually take an effort, right, you know, for us to actually be able to collect longitudinal data for the lifetime of a, an individual and try to kind of really start to demark exactly what are the choices, mm -hmm. right, that people can or cannot make to actually really modify events within the biome. But the key point, right, is, is, is really... Mm -hmm the quality of data and, and the, our ability to actually differentiate between one state of a state of, of disease versus another. If, it actually do, right. if, you, if you go back, you know, a hundred years, right, you know, you would actually define that there was such a thing as a disease of the blood, right? So as in, right. it's a disease of the blood, you know, now if you're actually looking into how that actually has evolved, right, you know, we might actually have, I don't know, 45 or so categorizations of hemophilia. So as in, because of the fact that the precision, you know, of the data, the precision of the measurement, the precision of the system now is, is becoming so much higher that we're able to actually identify differences that do respond best with one sort of therapy, but not another. And they're so adhesive to each other, right? That basically, unless you actually can measure the difference, then, then you can definitely, you know, define a better therapy. Imaging, for instance, you know, you were talking about imaging. That is mm -hmm. one of the best application of AI, right? So one of one of the first one right. is basically, yes, you know, the AI is actually, well, first of all, it's never tired of actually looking at an image and it kind of can leverage, you know, this massive amount of information to do comparative analysis, right? As to what can be identified as a problem versus not. So I think mm -hmm. that again, to kind of, you know, just continue on, you know, on, on to answering your question, the growth of AI is kind of really more about our ability to, to, to precisely define data sets that can eventually be analyzed to 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 basically better train data models to 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 kind of get to a deterministic assumption as to what the, what the disease really is 
Tell us about drug target discovery, because I think that might be such a great example of where you you have AI coming at it in both ways, both in the example we were talking about of mapping, you know, human biological systems. And I mean, using AI to, you know, you can train a model to better guess you know, based on data, what drug might be more successful yeah. in a process? Yeah, so it's, it's still, you know, at this stage, right? At this stage of, you know, of where we are, I think in the, in the life cycle of AI being used for healthcare, it's still trying, you know, it's still an art more than a science. You know, it's, it's kind of, you know, the identification of a patient still actually relies mostly, right, on human knowledge because of the fact that we don't actually have a standardized way of, of measuring and it's kind of really more up to, to the doctor instinct, right, or to the ACP instinct, their education, their their level of more or less ability to kind of recognize through, again, through data and symptoms, right, that basically you might actually have a potential target for, for instance, you know, for one of our assets, right, so that, that are kind of, you know, going through, through, you know, through our clinical trial process. But it is actually still not, we still don't actually have enough data, you know, specifically for old therapies, especially for rare disease, which is actually one of the specialties, you know, of our company. The data set is actually still not wide enough for AI to actually be, you know, the technology that basically will allow us to, to be better at what we do. You know, in essence, you, you know, you must actually have a large amount of quality data in order right. to be able to trust the prediction of, of a model and uh, mm-hmm. which is the reason why, you know, specifically to Takeda and also others in the industry, right? My belief is that not too many companies will kind of really invest into training a specific model for a specific therapy area. But I think it's actually really going to be an orchestration across companies where through partnerships, right, you might actually really start to hire, right, the, the model. You might start to kind of, you know, hire the, you know, more or less the, the, the precision, right? That basically the model has reached rather than actually trying to, to basically train a model from scratch unless basically a therapy, you know, you're actually addressing the therapy that has not been, you know, yet addressed by, by anyone else. So I think that there's going to be like a huge explosion, not only in our industry, but others, right? You know, of, of micro services and, my, you know, micro companies, right? Basically that will specialize in, in, in a specific therapy area and will basically monetize on the model and precision of the model rather than actually letting each individual from a pharmaceutical company, from a company, develop their own. I want to return there in a moment to what you were saying about microservices and maybe maybe personalization aspects that we can really some really see come into what's thought of in other industries as, as a customer experience. But I, I, I know in healthcare, the better way to think of it, of course, is the patient experience. But let's let's go back to something else you said just there, just about we don't have enough data right now on rare diseases. Just two things. Tell me if I'm wrong in extrapolating from here. It sounds like we'll make, you know, tremendous headway in terms of things that we get all the time, the proverbial common cold, a lot of common diseases for which we have all kinds of bodies and models and data to train from and, you know, a deeper history to pull from. There will also be those advances in mapping the, the human biological systems as we've been discussing, you know, heading into the future. But especially for those rare diseases, I don't want to put you in too much of a spot of trying to predict the future. Everybody since the advent of chat GPT knows that's not that great an idea. But from your advantage point, what do you see as happening once we once we do have that data? Or is that something we'll always be running up against that these, you know, diseases are so rare that we'll always be struggling for data? Well, again, a rare disease to me is is rare until it's not. Right. So as in gotcha. the, the, the definition of a rare disease is not because of the fact that 
you know, we, we know for sure that basically it's only affecting one million percent of the population. It's just because of the fact that we don't act, we have not been able to establish a pattern across the ACP community to to be able to actually deterministically recognize that that specific disease is different than something that is adjacent in terms of symptoms, right? So then once you actually start to generate data and the ACP community now is actually aware of the adjacency, right, of, again, of, of that specific data set, right, and or symptoms, and so they actually go and test. So now all of a sudden you actually need to, so as, you, as, as we're actually developing a drug or a therapy, we also need to actually develop a test that basically can assert the percentage of likelihood that basically that person is actually experiencing indeed this disease that we believe to actually be rare, but now all of a sudden we actually have yet another target. You know, sometimes we actually operate in rare disease where basically the total population, the, so the N for the disease is in the hundreds. Right? So now think about the population of the world and think of a company that basically is trying to actually address that, that need. But once you actually start to train physicians in, in, with, in the ability to kind of recognize the disease, then all of a sudden the, the N actually starts to grow. Uh, and mm-hmm. then you see that basically the therapy is effective. So now all of a sudden you actually start to scale and, and the scaling component is again into the electronics or test that basically you can start to distribute more widely to make sure that basically indeed a prescription of area disease product will actually affect you know, the, the care of the, of the specific patient. And so, so it's kind of really the combination of the test and how do you actually you know, make sure the business, you know, the, the individual does actually have the form of disease. And then you know, the, more, the more data you build, the more you, you know, again, it's the classic, you know, the more it, you, you basically can now actually have a model, you can, you can actually follow patterns and then the patterns can actually identify more people in a specific population and start to kind of readdress the cause of the disease that now all of a sudden you can actually start to test more broadly right across multiple multiple markets, multiple multiple parts of the world, right? So now all of a sudden you can actually yeah. start to build a model where basically rare disease is no longer rare, but, but it becomes something that is known, right? Because of the data model and, and the fact that basically you're checking all the boxes. Right. You can make those segments down yeah. to, you know, yeah. all, all kinds of ways, which I guess is a really good segue into my next question, which is, you know, to what degree do we see personalization kind of in patient experiences right now? Yeah. Like we see personalization in customer experiences, yeah. retail, financial services. Yeah. What does that look like? And, you know, keep in mind what you were saying before about these microservices, these micro markets yeah, yeah. Yeah. coming up. Yeah. So um, historically, uh, pharma companies have approached digital as basically a companion to an analog product, right? And so what we're trying to actually do at Takeda is something a little different because again, and maybe it's not, you know, maybe also other other farmers are approaching it the same way. You know, we, we now actually have a program that is actually called Target Digital Product Profile, right? So basically the association, so is the, is the classic definition of a target product profile, but now the word digital now is actually really focusing on the patient experience where the experience is kind of really tying all aspects of patient care. And it's not just about, you know, the effect, you know, the, the kind of like the efficacy of our product, but it's more about other factors that can actually contribute to the disease. And basically it's the dampening of all side effects or, or all effects that could actually be contributors to the disease state that, that our patient is, is you know, is, is in, right? So from our perspective, a digital product that basically is addressing the needs of a patient, right, must actually include all aspects of, of care. An example is actually a, a, an application that we do, just a very simple example, right, of, of, of what I mean by that is, for instance, in Japan, 
we have a product, a digital product that is kind of, you know, also including features for scheduling the collection of, of needles you know, for, from our patient that basically are getting injected because in some areas, uh, you know, the disposal of needles actually becomes yet an, another chore, right? That basically some, some of these, some of our patients, right, need to take care of. And we basically want to lessen, right, the delta between, you know, being able to actually live a normal life and provide you with services that basically can continue to actually focus you on, you know, enjoying your life experience and not actually constantly being reminded of your disease and, and, and the changes that that is actually causing in your day-to-day life. We've been talking a lot on the show so far about a lot of AI technologies that, that won't have be directly touching the patient, so to speak. And I think there's a lot of discussion out there in the media. You know, I've heard Larry Summers go on 60 Minutes and talk about how LLMs or like he's seen ChatGPT and how this technology will, his words, not not the opinion of, of you know, folks across healthcare, but like start replacing other human beings in, in, in healthcare workflows. And let's dispel that right now also if i i know responsible approaches and ethical approaches are a huge part of takeda's brand you know ai is no different and especially how you guys you know talk the talk walk the walk you sent me a lot of documentation i i thought in that literature there was a lot of compelling things to say about how you look at the role of humans going forward, especially in tandem with this technology. So I was hoping, you know, if you want to talk about that a little bit here and we can pull that apart, especially, you know, where the rubber hits the road in terms of responsible use of AI. I mean, uh, as our CEO has always, you know, share with, you know, with us, you know, you basically have, you know, the human ability to, to basically problem solve and, you know, and actually provide services. Then you actually have the next level is AI. Obviously it's, it's much faster, you know, if given the right information can be better than the human. But then the combination of AI and a human is better than AI and a human, right? And so, right, so right. And really did this companion role of AI that will continue to actually be trained, right, by humans. Now, the component that basically is quite interesting is the fact that basically AI doesn't learn like you and I. And by the way, you know, you usually can can only get information, you know, in a serial way from a, from a single person. You you cannot actually have billions of people actually give you information and actually learn. That's not how we learn. Exactly. AI, that's actually how AI learns. And, and you know, again, the, the ethical component is actually really at the core of what we're trying to do at Takeda because obviously, you know, we're, we're kind of really focused. It's actually part of, you know, part of our principles, right? We focus on, you know, patient trust, reputation and business, and which basically is, you know, we believe that by putting patients first and building trust with stakeholders, maintaining a strong reputation and delivering strong business performance, we can really achieve our mission of improving health outcomes for, for people around the world. So with that in mind, we are extra cautious, you know, relative to yeah. the information that we share, but we're also very much, you know, excited about the fact that, you know, with this new capability, we can indeed accelerate roles at Takeda. And we're actually really trained, you know, taking a, a more or less a persona-based approach, right, as to how does capabilities like GPT you know, improve and enhance, right, the performance of each and every one of the Takeda, you know, employees with the technology from the R of R&D into the D and to, to mm-hmm. kind of getting down into, you know, obviously our, you know, our patients. Of course. And, and I've heard other healthcare professionals come on the show and kind of complain about that vantage point from Larry Summers. But even more than just, you know, responsible practices or ethical practices being a part of any one company brand, what I really appreciated in, in your last answer is pointing at where we've seen this elsewhere, you know, even 
if you can replace every part of a doctor with some kind of digital tactile experience, that doesn't mean an improved experience for the patient. That doesn't mean, you know, a greater assurance. There's something about knowing like human decision making was going, was was verifying, was was supervising a surgery that's going to have tremendous legal implications, technological implications as we go forward. Leo, we're just about out of time. Really, really appreciate you being on on the show this week and, and talking to us about this stuff so much. Okay, well, thank you so much for having me on the show and have a great uh, rest of the day. Thanks. And before we close out today's episode, I think it's worth some pause to think about what Leo said in terms of microservices, personalization, coming to healthcare spaces. In previous episodes we've run in the last quarter, vis-a-vis large language models. I think as we start to see healthcare more specialized, we're going to see what Ori Goshen of AI21 Labs called language blades in terms of every individual organization, right down to divisions, Any single kind of workflow can be specified along language models. This shouldn't be confused with, and I know I keep harping on him, what Larry Summers said on 60 Minutes in terms of LLMs, ChatGPT. I think also what Leo was talking about towards the end there in terms of responsible AI and the responsible role of human beings really speaks to how, at least for the foreseeable future, ethically and just in terms of a patient sense of security that we're always going to want human beings really supervising every step of the way, especially very sensitive operations like surgeries and other invasive forms of healthcare. HIPAA exists for a reason, folks. On behalf of Daniel and the entire team here at Emerge, thanks so much for joining us today, and we'll catch you next time on the AI and Business Podcast.